During this month of February, we've been doing a sequence of classes on what is called the Brahma Viharas, or the divine abodes. And the divine abodes in classical Buddhist literature are made up of loving kindness, compassion, joy, and equanimity. And they're considered the expressions of the awakening heart-mind, the natural flavors of the awakening heart-mind, and what we discover through mindfulness. That in our practice of Vipassana, we bring mindfulness to our moments of experience, and the more we open and are present with what is, the more we see what is true, the more these qualities of heart-mind naturally become expressed. So with loving-kindness, as we open, what we begin to see in our own being and in each other is the beauty and the goodness that really is essence. And in that seeing, there's a natural sense of connectedness and love. As we awaken and we look, we also see suffering, see the pain, the squeeze, the contraction, that's just part of our conditioning that we get trapped in, and that's part of the conditioning of all life forms. And in seeing that, our hearts soften and we open in compassion. The third Brahma-vihara, which in Pali is called mudita, is known as joy and also sympathetic joy. It's the quality of aliveness that's experienced as we wake up, joy. And sympathetic joy, which is the joy in another's joy, a joy in another's um, awakening. For many of you, you've heard the term the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows a lot. And it's used as that sense of all the different moods and experiences that arise. And as we open to them, as we pay attention and include them in our experience, what we discover is that we are the openness, the awareness that can include them. We shift from feeling the victim of experience, I am having a happy day or a sad day, to the awareness that has room for and can include Joy, sympathetic joy, are the experience of openness when we've included all of this. The grounds of joy are really a sense of completeness, inclusion. The energy of joy is expansive. The energy of joy has a lot of space to it. It's an expression of a full letting go and letting be of life. And we dampen joy. We contract and push it under, make it small. When we begin to try to control things, try to make life different, when we fight how it is. E.B. White says, there are two ways to navigate through this world. One is to improve life, and the other is to enjoy life. Now, we all know there are times that it's important to put our skillfulness into improving. And this is not to say there 
it's never appropriate to plan and design and fix and so on. There's, there's room for that. But we way overdue. Isn't it true? That we're constantly trying to manipulate our experience to feel more pleasure and less pain. The very nature of enjoyment is a not doing. Enjoyment is agreeing to how it is, being with it fully. Gid says, know that joy is rarer, more difficult and more beautiful than sadness. Once you make this all-important discovery, you must embrace joy as a moral obligation. When I talk to people about joy, and before I do a talk, I end up kind of revving up on how much I explore other people's experiences of things, what seems quite clear is that very few people feel they experience much genuine joy. Some people feel like they get glimmers here and there, and most people feel like, as Gide says, it's rare. There's an idea of joy as being absolutely explosive fireworks and very incredibly wonderful and not a part of daily life. And I remember for myself in the early days at retreats when people would give talks and and their focus would be on joy or on rapture, I'd be angry about it because I felt like they were talking about something that a little bit now and then, but just wasn't where it was at for most of the time, and it was something I was supposed to strive for, and I wasn't feeling now, and it made me less than spiritually because I wasn't having lots of it. And for quite a long time, I didn't like talking about it because I felt kind of hypocritical. It was like, well, here's what the classic Buddhist scriptures say, you know, joy. It's like a natural part of our being, and here I am going around semi-grim, you know. In fact, today, I, I, I was pretty... Um, moody with my son for the last few days and today before I left he asked me what I was talking about tonight <laughs> you know and I told him and he said what do you know about joy <laughs> he sees some of my more interesting sides so so how come so little you know I say for myself um, my idea of what joy is has changed, so I now sense more because I no longer have this category of some supernatural explosive experience. Joy can be quieter than that. Do you know what I mean? And joy can be subtle. We don't always recognize it. So what I'd like to talk about tonight is what is it? What is this quality that really is our basic capacity that is an expression of as we become more free who we are? How do we have more access to it? And the first part of that, of course, is, well, how come so little? What, what holds it down? When we talk about loving kindness and we talk about compassion, we talk about the shadow side of it. So those of you that have been at these talks, what the Buddhists in the classical terms call the near enemy and the full enemy of these qualities. So how is that with, with joy? In the biggest sense, our habit is to be organized around our worries and our fears and our wants. And as long as we're wrapped up 
in the sense of a small self that's not whole, not complete, and needs more, the moments pass by and we don't receive them and experience the aliveness that's possible. The near enemy of joy is attachment, is attachment and overexcitement about pleasure. It's the holding on and the chasing after pleasure that makes it so we don't really get to rest in them. I'll give you some examples. It's the way that we experience sometimes when there's somebody we really want to be with and we really cherish, and then we find that in the midst of being with them that there's so much excitement and anxiety about it that we don't really rest in those moments. In some way, we're, we're sensing how short-lived it's going to be or how we're not really showing up or how it's not quite enough in some way. Or it can be with just a bite of food how rarely we enjoy food in a real, full, receptive way. We're kind of always wanting yet the next bite, the next taste. Or sometimes in vacations, how we're so aware of it's about to end and there's some tension about having a good time. When good things happen, promotions, achievements, somehow or other we take just a little bit of time to enjoy and we're quickly on to all the responsibilities and what next is called forth and what next we have to accomplish. A good friend of mine recently got involved in a a new relationship that she's really happy about and yet at each stage of it from the first contact to the early dating to now the growing commitment she's been preoccupied about what next has to happen for it really to be the one, you know? This looming thing over us that says there has to be something more, this is not enough, that stops us from really enjoying, experiencing joy. Basho, Japanese um, poet, though I'm in Kyoto, when the cuckoo sings, I long for Kyoto. Isn't that good? (laughs) It can be subtle how we grasp and in that grasping diminish and shove under the fullness of joy. There's a cartoon I really like. I keep it at home. And it's got a picture of a dog dreaming and in the dream bubble there's a bone and the caption says, Zen dog dreaming of medium-sized bone. (laughs) (laughs) So the near enemy. It's this chronic grasping not enough around pleasure that stops us from really taking it in. The enemy of joy is really the pushing away of enjoyment, the pushing away or aversion to happiness, There's this sense that life has limited resources and we feel needy and we feel endangered and it's very hard to find ease or celebration in joy. It's most clear in what's called sympathetic joy, how difficult it is when we feel in some way uh, deficient to take joy in the joy of others. This is Montaigne, who's a French philosopher, and he writes... 
there's something altogether not too displeasing in the misfortunes of our friends. Now, isn't that true? It's hard to admit, and yet our sympathetic joy is limited by our fears. I remember when I first moved to this area, it was about 17 years ago, and I, had a, I was in Boston before this, and I had to kind of pick up my therapy practice and transplant it here, and had all sorts of fears about how it would take root. And I had a friend who is a massage therapist whose business was booming, and she was reporting just how many new people each week. And, and you know, I'd you know, kind of smile and cheer her on and inside be groaning, like, oh, God, you know, and not at all be excited on her behalf. What's wrong with me? It brings that up. Envy is very common. Wherever we feel deficient, we'll envy other people for their personalities or their bodies or their accomplishments or their finances or whatever. Wherever it is, we have fears. It's hard to take joy in the joy of others. The same is true. It's hard to take joy in, our, in the pleasures and the aliveness of our own being. And it's for a similar reason. When we feel unworthy or deficient, we sabotage our own enjoyment. Many of you know this, that sense of, I'm not worth it, or if I have pleasure, it'll be followed by pain. Too much of a good thing is dangerous. This is really common. It seems so uh, counterintuitive, and it's not. There's a fear about letting go into the aliveness and enjoyment of this life. We shut down against pleasure, against joy, when we get into judging mode, when out of our sense of separateness we start blaming ourselves, when we start blaming others, when we can't forgive. It's very hard to open when we're pushing away part of ourself or part of another. I heard recently it said that forgiveness is giving up absolutely all hope for a better past. <laughs> you know, as long as we're holding on to wanting things a certain way, there's not going to be joy in how it is. Joko Beck says, our failure to know joy is a direct reflection of our inability to forgive. Any rejecting of life, I'm unworthy, he's unworthy, she's unworthy, any pushing away, and we're not going to experience that fullness and that aliveness, making anything the enemy. Woody Allen says, to you I'm an atheist, to God I'm the loyal opposition. <laughs> so it's a practice of inclusion. I think you get the point at this. <laughs> I'm trying to say it in different ways here. <laughs> Much of the time, the way that we close off is not so conscious. It's just the little moments of preoccupation and worry and planning and just not paying attention to the simple, small fullnesses of this breath and this wind and this sky and this sound. There's a way that we become just one step removed because we spend so much time in our thoughts in the way that we kind of watch through the window but don't engage directly. 
There's a story about two behavioral scientists that wake up after a night of lovemaking, and one says to the other, it was good for you. How was it for me? <laughs> Here's another quote for you. I seem to have a lot of them tonight, don't I? <laughs> if our life lacks a constant magic, it is because we cho- choose to observe our acts and lose ourselves in consideration of their imagined form instead of being impelled by their force. I like that because there's this way in which we really do think about how it is a lot more than jump into and feel the currents of the river moving through us. A friend recently described to me how she feels like she spent so many more mind moments fantasizing about love interests than actually loving and how jarring that was for her to realize that. Do you understand that this mudita, this joy, is becoming the aliveness? Letting go of our resistances and really entering the river at the end of the meditation, I um, encourage you just to, in a very simple way, feel aliveness. And it's what we are so organized not to do. We spend so much time one step removed and then wonder why we don't feel joy. There's only one place where joy and love and creativity and truth can be found, and that's just in this moment. If it's our habit to be elsewhere, we will not feel intimacy. Intimacy arises when the heart is not entangled with the forces of the wanting, the greed, the aversion, the delusion that keep us from being here. Take a moment, if you will, to reflect, and you might have already been doing this. You might close your eyes. And just sense where in the last day or week or month you felt a sense of joy, of mudita, even a glimmer. And take some time. Maybe that you look for high points that stand out or epiphanies or joyful moments that are further away from the present, and that's fine. What's been joyful for you? What's the experience been like? Try to sense what is your experience of who you are when you're feeling joy or feeling a glimmer of joy. Who's there? Who's home? What's the self like at that moment? If not joy, then happiness or gladness, aliveness, 
And let this be a reflection that you can come back to again and again. Because part of awakening our capacity for joy is to look at our experience in this way. For most, when really in that aliveness or experience of joy, there's little of a sense of self, little idea of a self. There's little ideas. It's too alive and immediate for that. Rather, joy arises with this just open, full experience of presence. To be fully here, right now, with this breath, for some with sadness or fear, for others happiness, to be present with trees, with the earth, this is the meaning of intimacy. It's based on a deep respect. It's based on a presence that listens and that allows life to be just as it is. I'll read you a short story. This is about a tribe in East Africa. And in this tribe, the art of true intimacy is fostered even before birth. The birth date of a child is not counted from the day of its physical birth, nor even the day of conception, as in other cultures. For this tribe, the birth date comes from the first time the child is a thought in its mother's mind. Aware of her intention to conceive a child with a particular father, the mother then goes off to sit alone under a tree. There she sits and listens until she can hear the song of the child that she hopes to conceive. Once she has heard it, she returns to her village and teaches it to the father so that they can sing it together as they make love, inviting the child to join them. After the child is conceived, she sings it to the baby in her womb. Then she teaches it to the old women and midwives of the village so that throughout the labor and at the miraculous moment of birth itself, the child is greeted with its song. After birth, all the villagers learn the song of their new member and sing it to the child when he falls or she falls and hurts herself. It is sung in times of triumph, in rituals and initiations. This song becomes a part of the marriage ceremony when the child is grown, and at the end of life, his or her loved ones will gather around the deathbed and sing this song for the last time. There's something that brings up a lot of longing and appreciation for this quality of intimacy, of connectedness with nature and sound and community and inner life. This kind of a listening presence that in our busyness we stray from, but really what is at the heart of meditation and spiritual life? It's a deep respect for what is, when we begin to pay attention in a more moment-to-moment way, what grows is a sense of belonging. There's a sense of belonging, and we just begin to feel that we belong here as much as any tree, as any rock, as any animal, as any other being. And with that sense of belonging, there's a truth feeling of connectedness and ease that comes in the heart. And this really is the key flavor of healing, this quality of ease, when we sense more who we are as part of the whole. 
So to review a bit, we distance ourselves. We discover the enemy or near enemy of joy in the ways that we contract and resist life, the ways we disagree, that we judge, feel deficient, keep distances. And we reconnect as we experience embodiment, that quality of intimacy with our own hearts and with each other and with the earth by opening to what is, just starting where we are. Joy can't be like kind of triggered off in a sudden way. It's rather what we reconnect to when we start just with what's true this moment and open to the aliveness of that. One of the stories I love about um, a retreat and a student in an interview had to do with a person having quite a difficult time, a lot of ups and downs, and complaining and saying, this is really a grim practice. I mean, I'm just being, you know, battered by difficult weather, and it's really hard, and, you know, I don't know. But he went back and continued to practice, and after a number of days, came in and reported, he said, I guess I know what joy is that joy comes from getting real. It's not from pleasantness. It's not from unpleasantness. It's from the opening of our hearts and our awareness to just what is. And in that opening, in that sense of this is real, in the connection to what's real, joy arises. And so I've seen in myself and everyone I know that the most profound spiritual unfolding comes from that connecting with the rawness, the loneliness, the sadness, the excitement, the fear from being more real. What arises out of that is a sense of confidence that if we can feel what's real, if we can express what's real, there's a confidence or ease that we have room for life, that we can handle what comes up. Chogyam Trungpa called this the lion's roar, that kind of courageous or great heart that can hold it all. Not controlling, but opening to what is, is the pathway. And what that means is putting aside our neatly packaged ideas about how it all is. The main way we try to control things is busily making sense of things and slapping our concepts onto our experience. We do it really quickly. I know for myself, I'll be sitting in meditation and have you know, this very vivid, alive experience and very quickly name it and describe it and try to sense how it fits into the pathway of awakening. You know what I mean? Just... And lo and behold, one step removed. And we do it through our day. We have very few consecutive moments of just raw, real, alive, happening experience. We're so quick to try to make sense, to know what's going on. Don't know mind. Remember that line, some of you are here for this, leave everything you know behind from Talocho Lake. Leave everything you know behind if you want to enter this moment fully open, unencumbered. The world 
will never starve for want of wonders, but only for want of wonder. That's Chesterton. You know, we treasure feelings of awe and wonder. We love it. We love it when we kind of put aside our familiar mentality and that we get wowed by the universe. We love it. And yet it's so much our habit to stay small, to stay conceptual. When we do, when we move more into the question than the answer, into the wonder, there's a sense of innocence and freshness of getting real. There's a book called Children's Letters to God that I have at home, and I brought in a few of them because they're so wonderful. I'll just read you some. Dear God, did you mean for the giraffe to look like that, or was that an accident? Norma. (laughs) Instead of making people die and making new ones, why not just keep the ones you got now? James. (laughs) I went to this wedding and they kissed right in church. Is that okay? Neil. (laughs) Do you really mean do unto others as they do unto you? Because if you do, I'm going to fix my brother, Darla. Thank you, God, for the baby brother, but what I prayed for was a puppy, Joyce. (laughs) Are boys better than girls? I know you are one, so try to be fair. Sylvia. (laughs) Please send me a pony. I never asked for anything before. You can look it up, Bruce. <laughs> Dear God, if you, let the di- if you let the dinosaur not go extinct, we would not have a country. You did the right thing, Jonathan. <laughs> Dear God, it is great the way you always get the stars in the right place. Jeff, one more. Dear God, I didn't think orange went with purple until I saw the sunset you made on Tuesday. That was cool, Eugene. (laughs) Leaving everything we know behind. Not resisting what is. So the Buddha described these different flavors of the awakening heart-mind flavors of love, of compassion, of joy. Joy has the quality of celebration. Joy is that expansiveness that actually celebrates and announces wakefulness, that sees this changing and permanent flow of life and doesn't fight it, but rather becomes it, becomes this life. And in wise cultures, this celebration is a very real activity, celebrating the changes from birth to death in a a joyful way. It's an honoring of impermanence. Rumi writes, let the beauty we love be what we do. There are hundreds of ways to kneel and kiss the ground, to live it, to live our love. When we're full, when we're full and here and alive, it naturally becomes expressed through our words and our loving and our living. This, in a way, is the meaning of blessing. It's an interesting word. To bless means to make holy, 
to make sacred, to make whole. And when we're blessed, that means we're touched with a sense of the sacred, with a sense of the whole. And the natural experience is one of overflowing. When we're touched with a sense of the whole, we overflow like a fountain. We express blessings. We offer blessings. We bow to this life. It's been described that joy is naturally generous. Classical theologians spoke of the Supreme Being's ontological desire to pour forth goodness, to share and ignite being spontaneously. This is the nature of feeling full, to overflow. I'd like to read you a little bit from uh, a book that I love. It's called The Universe is a Green Dragon. And it's written by Brian Swim, who's a cosmologist, who really is describing joy as a basic dynamic principle of this universe. He describes it as the second law of thermodynamics, expansion out from an area of high concentration. Then it gets more poetic. He says, take supernovas as our models. When they had filled themselves with riches, they exploded in a vast cosmic celebration of their work. We were created out of the dynamic of cosmic celebration. Cosmic generosity, outpouring, providing the source of all life. As we awaken, as we become aware, our being becomes, like the supernova, intensely present and rich. We also overflow with that creatively expressing wakefulness. We become the celebration. We become the generosity. Where is the human? Where is the human in all that? And then he says, the human is a space, an opening, where the universe celebrates its existence. So that's one flavor. The stars burst to give life, and we also expand as part of that awakening process. Central to the experience of wakefulness, fullness, creativity, love, is a lack of preoccupation or identification with smallness, with self. It's a lack of needing to finish what's unfinished, complete what's incomplete, because there's a sense of fullness already there. Selflessness happens naturally as we become aware. The very nature of awareness is to connect and open and sense the whole of things, to not be caught in smallness, to sense the natural radiance of being. This quote's from Pema Chodron. Egolessness has been compared to the rays of the sun. With no solid sun, the rays just radiate outward. In the same way, wakefulness naturally radiates out when we're not so concerned with ourselves. Egolessness is the same thing as basic goodness or Buddha nature or unconditional being. It's what we always have and never really lose, but we can forget when we get caught. And we find it so true if we reflect on the times that we felt spontaneously generous or giving or caring or concerned. There's nobody home. There's just those rays radiating outward naturally. It's just our nature to overflow, to naturally want to give, to care, to extend. 
when we're not preoccupied with the dramas of something's wrong with me, we naturally become generous. We open to this through the practice of presence, starting just with this moment, starting with anger, with fear, with confusion, with concepts, and noticing what's true, and then feeling the aliveness of that, and coming back home as we feel the aliveness with care and with presence. This too, this too, there's that mantra just to keep on including, yes, this too, until there's that sense of realness that really opens our hearts. Cultivating joy is mostly a practice of presence. It starts with mindfulness of what is. But just as with loving kindness and compassion, there are certain reflections and meditations we can do to kind of set the grounds to inspire us and to return our attention to who we are. So I'll just mention them, and then we'll just practice a bit together. The first is to more intentionally look for those moments when we are awake, to recognize wakefulness. It doesn't mean spinning off conceptually in this great congratulation of self, which we do do, but rather just a ah, this, this moment. Moments when there's not grasping, when we're not wanting it different, when we're not pushing away, when there's a simplicity of a bit of ease or contentment, presence, care, appreciation of beauty, to recognize those moments. We are so identified with when those moments aren't there, with when we're wanting things, fearing things, that to become familiar with the grounds of joy is to start to notice the moments of freedom, and we all have them. The second practice of evoking and connecting with joy is the practice of generosity, of offering blessings. And blessings is the word I'm using for right now, but in some way offering our wish to beings that they may be well. It can be through action, through the prayer of heart. Generosity brings great joy. In moments that we genuinely just plain give, there's a tremendous freedom and happiness that goes with that. It doesn't have to be grandiose or monumental. I remember right before the holidays being at the mall and getting into this space of feeling, God, I don't belong here. Look at all these people and they're all frenetic and I just have to get out of here and it's all consumer and that whole month. And then I said, okay, experiment. And I started kind of tuning into different people I'd see and sensing that this being, too, wants to be happy, has the capacity to be happy, and just wishing they may be happy. May these holidays bring happiness. And I started feeling these connections with people that had no idea I was doing this because I was paying attention and intending to offer something. And it just opened me out of my trip that I was on. I didn't, I wasn't in a fully free, relaxed space because I was in a mall, you know. <laughs> but it shifted. Things opened. My small identification was not quite so tight. 
story that I love. This is about Kalu Rinpoche, who's um, a wonderful 80, now probably 85-year-old Tibetan master, and I'm not sure if he's even alive anymore, but a number of years ago he visited the Insight Meditation Society in um, Barrie, Massachusetts, and they took him to the Boston Aquarium, which is filled with wonderful creatures. And what he did when he got to the aquarium, he was holding his mullah, his beads, you know, and he went to each, each part of the aquarium and he'd tapped each tank and he'd start chanting, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om Mani Padme Hum. And he'd wait and for a few moments and pause and then he'd go on to the next tank and tap it lightly, Om Mani Padme Hum, Om. And so they asked him what he was doing. And he said, I'm trying to get the attention of the beings within, and then I bless them that they too may be liberated. And here he was, getting, offering his blessings to each fish and each creature in the aquarium. I just thought, what a wonderful way to go through life, to really have that quality of overflowing care to offer blessings to different beings. And it can be done so quietly, and yet can be such a powerful practice. So let's just take a few moments, if you will, come sitting up. Taking a few breaths and letting the breaths you take bring you back home. Relaxing some through the body in an intentional way as we do. You might sense the half smile of the Buddha. Many of you know that part of the teachings that this half-smile, this relaxed yet real smile, can help to open us to our natural sense of ease and gentleness. And with the non-judging, careful awareness, just sense what's true for you in this moment. Aware of your embodiment, aware of the life of the body, Sensing the fullness of this moment and this one. Fullness has neither to do with pain or pleasure, but rather a fullness of presence that nothing is missing. The mantra, this too and this too, including whatever's here with kindness, with presence. Letting there be that sense of intimacy that respects how life is, that relaxes into just what is in a wakeful way. We begin with a classical practice in sympathetic joy. And in doing so, to ask you to think of somebody you care about 
having good fortune. So bring to mind someone that is important to you and dear to you. And imagine and sense them deeply happy. Them experiencing personal and spiritual awakening, fullness. And visually see this and sense this. Each being has this capacity. The senses in someone you care about and feel how it feels for them. And how you feel <coughs> towards this happening for them. Opening to mudita, the sympathetic joy, the joy and the joy of others. Offering your blessing the classical words, may you prosper, be joyful. May you appreciate blessings in your life. May this life be filled with blessings of awakening, of joy. Taking a few breaths and then bringing to mind another person who you'd like to offer your blessings to. Bring to mind a being you care about and again, imagining them and sensing them, touching into that fullness, happy, feeling complete, having good fortune in some way that matters deeply to them. Opening. Feeling how it feels for them. Feeling how you feel as they experience awakening or joy or happiness. And from your heart, offering your blessing, may you be joyful. May you experience blessings, appreciate these blessings. Be filled with joy. taking a few full breaths. Sensing your own capacity now for happiness, for fullness. You might think of a time or just feel within your heart this moment how it can be to feel a sense of enough. This moment is enough. The peace and ease of resting in life as it is. and feeling real, awake, truly here. And offering your blessings to your own being. May this life be filled with the blessings of awakening, 
of the awakening heart, awakening mind. May I love fully, feel the joy of being real, feel connected, fully alive. And finally, offering our blessings now to all beings, bringing our hearts together in prayer. May all beings be filled with loving kindness. May all beings be held in loving kindness. May all beings touch great and natural peace. May all beings open to the joy of living. May all beings awaken and be free. Closing as we open with the sound current of OM. Please inhale and exhale. And then inhaling together to chant. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.